Blog Talk Radio.
And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. And our lead story deals with the situation in the Republic of South Sudan. Officials dismiss reports about the presidential directives to close its borders with the troubled neighboring Republic of Sudan to the north. Dung Dung Malik, the acting foreign minister of foreign affairs and international corporation of South Sudan, expressed his lack of awareness regarding the issuance of such directives, casting doubt on the credibility of the reports. He said that, I am not aware of the issue of such reports. Where did you get the information, he asked, wondering, Malik, uh, before saying this is incorrect and unfounded information. The South Sudanese official was responding to media reports quoting officials in South Sudan who attributed the directive to President uh, Salva Kiir, ordering the military and security forces to close borders with Sudan and the Central African Republic to prevent the spillover of the conflict in Sudan. The rumors emerged after attacks by the SPLA Hilu on the capital of South Kordofan State, which borders South Sudan, breaking a succession of hostilities facilitated by the South Sudanese government. President Kiir exerted efforts to mediate and end the South Kordofan conflict, saying the conflict affects his relations uh, with Sudan and destabilizes national security. Major General Lul Raoul Bang, the spokesperson uh, for South Sudan's People's Defense Force, also denied any knowledge of the directives given to the military to close borders with Sudan or any neighboring country in the region. I have no such information. I cannot confirm, uh, said Kuang. To cut short the rumors, the Sudanese Foreign Ministry issued a formal statement denying the border closures with Sudan. The statement underscored that the government remains vigilant to ensure that the open-door policy is not exploited for unlawful activities. A senior security officer for the Sudan Tribune told the Sudan Tribune that their institution possesses an efficient operational unit that functions with high efficiency in accordance with bilateral agreements of security cooperation with neighboring countries in the region. The source also denied the border shutdown presidential decision, saying, quote, there's nothing like that. The president has given no orders. When was it? South Sudan and Chad are the two neighboring countries with an open door policy for Sudanese refugees. Ethiopia and recently Egypt have imposed a visa for the Sudanese fleeing the war. And in other news, uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia had fruitful participation at the new Global Financing Pact Summit that broadens the country's bilateral cooperation with global actors. The government communications services has said at a weekly press briefing she held yesterday, GCS State Minister Salamawet Kasa noted that the premier held fruitful discussions with leaders of various countries and corporate heads on the issues of mutual concern on the margins of the summit in Paris. Abiy discussed bilateral issues with French President Emmanuel Macron, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, and Egyptian leader Abdul Fattah al-Sisi. The leaders have agreed to collaborate in various sectors. He also held discussions with Kristalina Georgieva, Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund and Ajay Banga, the soon-to-be president of the World Bank Group, to seek ways of cooperation. <clears throat> it was reported, PM told the conference that the contemporary global financial and environmental issues 
should be resolved with no active participation of an all actors and called on the international finance institutions to be loyal for their promises. Likewise, countries which are still uh, releasing high carbon emissions should pay compensation to environmental protection programs. He also told the conference that Ethiopia has been working with Green Legacy Initiative to fight the environmental crisis and recommend countries to share his country's successes in climate change, the state minister noted. On his Twitter post, the prime minister of Ethiopia stated his productive sessions during the summit and his experience sharing about Ethiopia's success in combating the climate crisis. And you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, the International African American Museum will soon open in Charleston, South Carolina, at one of the country's most historically significant trading ports, overlooking the sacred site of Gadsden's Wharf, at which an estimated 45% of enslaved Africans entered the United States. The museum houses exhibits and artifacts exploring how African Americans' labor and resistance shaped the nation and the world. It also includes a genealogy research center to help families trace their ancestors from their arrival on North American soil. Truth sets us free, free to understand, free to respect, and free to appreciate the full spectrum of our shared history, free to feel empathy and common purpose, and free to build a stronger future together, said Joseph Riley, the former mayor of Charleston, South Carolina, speaking at the opening ceremony on yesterday. More than 23 years in the making, the museum had been originally set to open in 2020, but was delayed by the coronavirus pandemic as well as issues in the supply chain of materials needed to complete construction. And uh, finally, uh, in regard to uh, the situation in uh, Ukraine, the Russian armed forces is saying that it repelled 10 attacks uh, by the armed forces of Ukraine around Aryomet. Our Defense Ministry spokesperson, Lieutenant General Igor Konashevkov, uh, reported this on Thursday. According to him, uh, over the day, the armed forces of Ukraine continued to attempt offensive operations in Donetsk and Krasnomask, Yusno, Donetsk, and Zaporizhia regions in their directions. In the Donetsk uh, direction near the city of Artemovsk, Competent and courageous actions of the defending units of the Russian southern group of forces successfully propelled 10 enemy tanks in the areas of the settlement of Orokovo, Vasilevka, uh, Kurdi Movka, uh, Yago Duno, uh, Zalin Daskoy, and Dubovo Vasileva in the Donetsk People's Republic over the day, he said. Now, in addition, uh, Russian forces have said they prevent four attacks by Ukrainian sabotage groups in the Puyansk region and disrupted the rotation of enemy troops over the past 24 hours. The crews of assault helicopters of Russia's battalion West unleashed 11 missile strikes on two Ukrainian brigades in the Kupyansk area. Battle Group spokesman Sergei Zabensky told us to the TASS news agency. In combat in the Kubyansk area, the crew of KA-52 and MI-28 assault helicopters and SU-25 fighters of the Battle Group West carried out 11 airstrikes 
on nine areas where manpower, weapons, military, and special equipment and personnel of Ukraine's 14th separate mechanized brigades and the 103rd separate territorial defense brigade were amassed, uh, Zabinsky said. Besides, Russian forces averted four attacks of Ukrainian subversive groups in the Kubyansk area and thwarted the rotation of enemy troops over the past day during a special military operation in Ukraine, Zabinsky reported. The group's artillery thwarted uh, four attempts by the Ukrainian military to rotate troops at forward positions near the settlements of Bereksnoya, Senkovka, and Novosolovsky, Zabinsky stated. The Russian air defense troops uh, earlier today repelled the Ukrainian drone attacks in the Belgorod region. Governor Vasheflov Latkov uh, said on his Telegram channel, Our air defense system worked in the Velitsky district. A Ukrainian drone was shot down over the village of Dolgi, he wrote. The governor added that the operational services were clarifying the consequences on the ground. One civilian killed, several more wounded in general and in Ukraine shelling attack. According to a preliminary data, the shelling was conducted from HIMARS military launch rocket systems. One civilian was killed and several more were wounded in central Donetsk as a result of shelling by Ukrainian troops. A spokesman for local emergency services told the TASS news agency earlier today. One person was killed and several others were wounded. The strike was delivered at the area around the Akula Business Center. According to preliminary data, shelling was conducted from HIMARS, multiple launch rocket systems. According to the mission of the Donetsk People's Republic to the Joint Control of Coordination Center, for issues related to Ukrainian war crimes, Ukrainian troops staged eight shelling attacks on Donetsk uh, during uh, the day. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches and hundreds of newspapers, and magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do uh, is go to our website, and that's at Pan African News. Dot blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do uh, is go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. And that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. This is Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Phyllis Hyman, and with the track entitled Why Not Me. And this is uh, Black Music Month, and uh, we have been celebrating as we do every week, but this gives us even more of an opportunity to celebrate, to commemorate, to honor, and to reflect upon, and to continue our research into the profound legacy of uh, African music uh, in North America. I want to play an audio documentary on uh, the and uh, its artists, uh, which originated here in the city of Detroit in the late 1950s. By the early 1960s, Motown Records was a phenomenon on a national level. Bringing in such artists as the Marvelettes, and later uh, people such as Mary Wells and Brenda Holloway, uh, whose music we play here on the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. We're going to look back at a uh, historic occasion, the first Motown Review Tour of the U.K., in 1964. Let's listen in. In November 1964, Motown achieved their very first number one hit in the UK. There's no week that goes by when I haven't played a Motown record on a radio station somewhere. If you listen to Reach Out, I'll Be There or Baby Love, it doesn't sound dated. In the 60s, if you had a record player, you had to play Motown records. We were the best. To capitalize on this success, the label quickly organized a major British tour, starting in March 1965. Something about the UK, when you had a hit there, somehow it would spread all over the world. Three weeks, from the 20th of March to the 14th of April, 1965, a coach carried the Supremes, Martha and the Vandellas, Smokey Robinson, and Little Stevie Wonder around England, Scotland, and Wales. Today, this would be considered a lineup to die for, but in 1965, the tour was not the success everyone hoped for. Although an artistic triumph, it was a box office disaster. We called it the Ghost Tour. England was a big disappointment. <laughs> Despite this setback, the trip would be absolutely crucial to Motown breaking the UK. This is the story of how an ambitious label from Detroit conquered Britain through talent, drive, and a little help from some UK friends. We loved the label. We loved the music, the sound they made. You were cool if you knew about Motown, you know? Detroit was a booming factory town with a hunger for entertainment. Uh, Detroit, to me, in, in the late 50s, was a, a very swinging kind of town. It was quite musical. There were many show bars, so to speak. It was a very fun city. It was a great time. Great time to uh, be alive. There was a lot of music. There was a lot of going out, coming in. People were working hard. You know, the factories, you could hear them clinking and clanking. Uh, and it had a, it had like a rhythm to it, you know? Detroit is known for its automobile. 
Detroit was alive with dreams, hope, and a brand new sound. In 1959, Motown was launched. It's got the little girls that make them my heart sing the Motor City. I remember my high school and how we would, after the school session, we'd go out in the park and we'd sing. Those of us that had voices, uh, do wop music. You know, if somebody hit a bad note, they'd, we'd wop them. Uh, and uh, I remember uh, songs coming out uh, from a company, a black-owned company. My dad fell in love with one song recorded by a guy named Barrett Strong. Best is a life of free. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need fun. Barry Gordy, a former boxer and factory worker, was the architect of Motown Records, which he started with an $800 loan from his father. Brimming with confidence, Barry Gordy named Motown's headquarters in Detroit, Hitsville, USA. And it was here, in a cramped recording studio, that one of the label's earliest pop hits was recorded. And then she said, by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. first million seller really put Motown on the airwaves. It put it really out there so that people had a feeling there's a new sheriff in town. By 1963, Marvin Gaye, the Marvelettes, and Martha and the Vandellas were climbing high up the American pop charts in the wake of Smokey's hit. In the UK in the late 50s, British pop lacked the bite of black American music for some teenagers, like Steve Barrow. Cliff Richard wasn't expressing anything when he saying, I've got myself a living doll. You know, you think, so? You can tell that to the birds and bees, you know. I want money. That's direct. That's not oblique. That's not going around the houses like the English way, you know. Subtle. You know, that's telling it like it is. But as late as 1963, and despite a passionate underground group of British fans, the Motown sound was still almost impossible to hear in the UK. There weren't very many places to hear pop music in the early 60s in Britain. You had Radio Luxembourg, of course, at night, who broadcast shows with, that played a lot of records. Broadcast from the other side of the channel, Radio Luxembourg was an English-language station and virtually the only source of black American music for British fans. What happened is, you know, suddenly you came across this, this tiny little outpost in the middle of the night when really you should be asleep to school. And of course that only lent to the, you know, the special quality of it. You were meeting in the middle of the night with the music that was to change your life. As well as a media blackout on soul music, another obstacle that Motown faced in Britain was an explosive new style of music that was grabbing all the upturn of the entire music industry. And 
I don't think American product was, was very much um, thought of to a great degree. I think the concentration was on British artists. Initially, the radio stations wouldn't touch Motown. We released all this product, and yet we couldn't get any support from any radio at all. I was considered a bit strange because everyone was into the Beatles and the Stones and the Mersey Beat was really happening. I was so aware that these were, a lot of them were cover versions of American records. I was very anti the Mersey Beat. What you would find was most fans thought it was ours. I mean, not, not everyone is a connoisseur, you know, so if you sing it, they assume it's yours. Many British bands covered Motown records because they were fantastic songs but also because no one in the UK knew the original versions. The injustice that came from these cover versions seemed just appalling. What on earth were they doing covering these records? Why would you want to listen to the Rolling Stones sing Can I Get a Witness if you had Marvin Gaye? Basically, we were asked, you know, what's your favorite music? We would say black American music. We were all soul fans. I think one of the good things about the Beatles, we had very similar tastes. All of us loved Motown. But when we actually started covering their stuff and said that they were our favorite artists, I think we did each other a favor. By 1964, Motown acts were making massive pop breakthroughs in the States. Most impressively, the Supremes hit number one in the American pop charts three times that year. I think because of the success that he's had, it made you want to go further as you could. It becomes, wow, look what we've done, let's do some more. Today, the United States, tomorrow the world. <laughs> Then, in November 1964, thanks to enthusiastic endorsements from the Beatles and independent radio DJs, a major breakthrough happened. Motown finally reached number one in the UK pop charts with Baby Love. With success rocketing in the States, and their very first number one hit single in the UK, Barry Gordy believed the time was right to launch a major Motown offensive in Britain. On the 15th of March, 1965, the Motown Review jetted into London. A hardcore of fans from the British Tamla Motown Appreciation Society met Martha and the Vandellas, Stevie Wonder, the Miracles, and the Supremes at Heathrow Airport. Had gotten such a huge, wonderful reception. I think it was EMI who was handling everything, and the fans who had shown up at the airport. It was, we, our expectation of the tour was so great. I was just amazed at the reception we received at the airport. The reception we received on the way to the hotel, 
I mean, it was like overwhelming. On the 20th of March, 1965, the Motown artists were nervously gearing up backstage at the Astoria to play their very first UK show. Following their number one hits in the States and the UK, the Supremes were now headlining for the first time. I remember going along to the Astoria, which in those days was in Finsbury Park, going with Vicky Wickham and a lot of the Ready Steady Go gang. I mean, everybody was just bowled over. These great-looking guys or great-looking girls in costumes, you know, doing routines and steps and dances that, you know, we hadn't even dreamed of, far less seen. It was absolutely phenomenal. The very youngest Motown star to perform that night was also a pretty tough act to follow. Motown Review proudly presents... 13-year-old genius of our time. The most exciting thing of all on that show was little Stevie Wonder. He was absolutely blindingly brilliant. Gordy realised right from the word go that you couldn't just produce these records. The artists had to be exciting and go on stage and present these songs. They had the, you know, the, the, the wigs and everything and they had the, the, these wonderful costumes that they came out in, but it was all glamorous. And every night they would just go out there and just perform and they were always 100% every single performance they did. The most depressing thing of all about the opening concert was the fact that the theatre was half empty. I thought that was so sad. And uh, those of us who were there had to cheer and clap the, about ten times louder than usual uh, just to try and make up for it. Despite the low attendance of the Astoria, Gordy kept the Motown act so busy they had no time to dwell on the small turnout. On our first press conference, People pressed in, nowhere to sit, body to body, and very hot temperature because it was so crowded from body heat. One of the paparazzi say to me, uh, you look a little bit weary. You could use some Guinness. And I'm saying to him, what's a Guinness? And he said, I'll tell you, I'll go get you a hot pint. He came back, and I, I drank it because I needed the help. And while the other two girls were falling asleep on one another, I was all full of energy because it does give you energy and it's not so much to, to uh, inebriate you but to give you the little surge that I needed and I've been a drinker of Guinness ever since. Following two shows in London, the Motown Review left the capital for their three-week tour of Britain. Motown boss Barry Gordy accompanied his artists on the UK tour. He was the man who orchestrated all the elements that made Motown unique. From the artist development department to music that crossed racial barriers, it was his vision 
that would eventually push Motown onto the global stage. Well, he obviously had a, a, a big say in things. I think in how they dressed, how everyone looked, how the material was. I think you've got to hand it to Berry Gordy. It didn't seem like the other labels had such a charismatic leader. Barry Gordy wanted the Motown tour to promote both his artists and the label at the same time. The idea of a review, I mean, a, a label putting together their artists to come over and say, look, this is promoting not only the artists themselves, but the label itself, the whole concept, the whole ethos of what Motown was all about. That was an extraordinary thing. We didn't really have that going on in UK at all. In fact, I don't think, that, I think it was possibly the first time the word review had been used for a tour of that nature. marketing, distribution, all these things were very new for a black company. And uh, I would say probably the, the, the first problem would be to how do we sell this music? So now you open up to other ethnic groups. So it wasn't just all a black company. Very, very early on, there were uh, there was Barney Ellis, who was the, the marketing guy, and I think Barney's, I, should, I think he's Italian. <laughs> I was a salesman at Capitol Records, and I knew what, how to sell and how not to sell. I had artists like Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and things like that. So I worked the same things that I did at Capitol at Motown. Gordy always hired the best person for the job, irrespective of race. His talent was to know what people could do and to say, okay, that's good for me. You're hired. Dave Godin ran the British Tamla Motown Appreciation Society and was the label's official advisor in the UK. Dave Godin, in this country, just went to great lengths to promote it in every way he could. But intriguingly, because of Dave Godin's passion for the music, he may have exaggerated Motown's popularity in the UK to Gordon. I've heard that he had led Barry Gordy to believe there were many more fan members than there really were. We would never have brought the tour there if we didn't think it was going to be successful without somebody telling us. I mean, look, we're not naive little kids. I mean, dollars and cents was what was going to happen there, and so we took the tour across the entire country. Tor's first stop after leaving London was Bristol. One teenager who'd been a devoted Motown fan for a couple of years was Adam White. In the provinces, you know, it was almost unbelievable that they would be coming to your town. So firstly, you didn't believe it, and then when you realized it was true, you know, it was a religious experience. Martha and the Vandellas came out on stage three dynamic, exciting girls, and they were bouncing around the stage like something I had never seen. They sang Dancing in the Street. I mean, that's an anthem. It was extraordinary. You almost couldn't believe that you would, you would be seeing and hearing this music in front of you. Martha had a very strong, vibrant voice, a sense of, that was rhythm and blues, that was soul. <laughs>
dynamite. It was amazing. And something else that's important about Motown in Britain at that time, of course, you know, they were, they were choreographed. They had an act. Motown was the very epitome of slick, uptown American soul. Unlike many British acts, the Motown stars didn't just stand in front of the microphone. Their sharp moves and choreographed routines were an essential part of the training they had received in Detroit. Not only did you have this extraordinary music being performed live in front of your eyes, you had a visual experience as well. So it made it a 3D event. And that only added to, to the you know, extraordinary nature of the night and the sense that all your, you know, all your wishes were fulfilled at once. Unfortunately, unsold tickets continued to haunt the tour. I used to remember looking back behind me and just seeing row and row of empty seats. So I would have said if Colston Hall's capacity was 2,000, there were three or 400 people at most in that, in that hall. No one came. <laughs> we were so excited. We'd come to the Hammersmith or wherever we were, and the audience was like half-filled. No one was out there. So that's why we called it the ghost tour. In the States, Motown had fought from the bottom up to get established. Now, in the UK, they resorted to tough measures. British act Georgie Fame, at number one in the UK pop charts with Yeah Yeah, was drafted in to boost flagging ticket sales. Colin Green, guitarist for Georgie Fame, was flattered to be asked. To me it was a terrific honour to be considered good enough to be involved with those illustrious names. I felt a little ill at ease is the wrong word. Uh, I thought we, we were perhaps an imitation of what they were. Georgie Fame enjoyed hanging out backstage with the Motown artists, including Earl Van Dyke, the leader of the Funk Brothers. Although seasoned performers themselves, Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames had never witnessed such a dazzling review before. Every night they watch Hypnotized, wondering how they could follow such acts. My major thing in watching from the wings would have been the musicians, what they were doing, how they were doing it. Just what they didn't play a lot of the time, what they left out. The Funk Brothers backed the Motown artists on this tour. They gave the Motown sound its unique characteristics back in the Detroit studio. If you listen to a modern record now that's got a tambourine on it, you know, the record says, no, 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 the tambourine is... If you listen to a Motown, it's right up front. And you listen to Beatle records, the tambourine's right up front. Probably because the Motown was right up front. You know, these records had the passion of gospel and they had the coolness of jazz as well. And they had something new, which was this beat. Once you heard those kind of syncopated rhythms that Motown was dealing with, you had to dance. Dancing in the street demands that you dance, money. These records make you dance. You know, the one thing about post-war English music is the rhythm sections 
they don't really swing like the American rhythm sections. They haven't got the kick. Motown had these things all combined in the one package. One of the big things that became huge attraction for me was when I started listening to the bass on the records, and in particular James Jameson. And you realise you do, 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 do. And well, that's the record. But that bomb, that's the signature, you know, of Motown. So, yeah, I think James is probably my favourite uh, bass player ever. During the 1965 UK tour, Jameson was required back in the Motown studio, so a talented 17-year-old called Tony Newton was drafted in to play bass. Some people don't think bass players should be heard, they should be felt, and then, but with Motown, you need to hear the bass because it's playing a different role than a normal bass. On stage one night with Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Tony had an altercation with Barry Gordy. We're on stage, and so... Some one of Barry's guys said, turn down your amp, turn down your amp. So I'm not turning, I kept shaking my head, I'm not going to turn it down. One time he gets up and he goes to touch my amp and I took my bass like this. And the show was going on all along, right? So I said, don't touch my amp. At the end of the show, I think they wanted to return me back to Detroit thinking I was uncontrollable. but they didn't have nobody to play the music. <laughs> I was really lucky at that. I was really cocky and lucky at the same time. <laughs> For the young Motown stars who were in their late teens and early 20s, life on the road was a lot of fun. The bus trip was hilarious. <laughs> we had a ball on that bus. What's it now? Stevie was very much looked upon as the kind of baby of the tour, but really he was the ringleader of most of what was going on. He was always joking around. He had several little phrases that he used to use to people. Somebody annoyed him, he used to turn around and say, I wish you severe chest pains in the head. He was a bull for that. At some times, there was a few squabbles, but at times when you wanted to sleep, everybody felt like they wanted to sing. And then when you didn't want to sleep, nobody wanted to sing. It was just because there were so many people on this bus. This family atmosphere that existed among the Motown acts was a crucial ingredient to the recording process in Detroit. We were making a point whenever we were on the road to gather at History USA. And um, we would uh, be available for whatever. Smokey came to the door once, and he was in Studio A, they said, come on, everybody, we're cutting a song, come on and sing along on it. And we got down in the studio, and before you know it, he said, all right, is everybody ready? All right, is everybody ready? Yeah! 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 And the machines were running, and he started, lum de lum de la That was the enthusiasm. That was the Motown way. 
everything was fun, you know, coming home and just laying back and enjoying, going to the studio, just hanging out and then coming by Motown on your way home at 2 o'clock in the morning and listening to some other people record. You know how Christmas fills the air? Well, it was that kind of atmosphere all the time. As the tour zigzagged across the UK, the Motown artists soon discovered that, compared to London, life was a little different in the provinces. Madeline Bell is an American singer who based herself in the UK from 1962. The artists in Motown, they'd all come from projects, what we call council flats. They'd all come from the projects, and they didn't have that much themselves, but the things that they did have was hot water and radiators in, 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 your, in your place, and, you know, there were some things that, that were just sort of normal to us, and then when we came to, to the UK, it was different. so cold. I would put on two of my coats. In fact, I remember sleeping once in my boots and my leather jacket. I had to learn how to keep my shillings so that I might have heat all night because the radiators were operated by shillings. You couldn't put too many at one time, so you'd wake up really cold and put some more shillings in the machine. I stacked my shillings prior to going to, to rest. <laughs> During that three-week tour, the British A-Roads made the journey seem sluggish and drawn out to the Motown artists who were used to giant American freeways. They was kind of hard to get used to England because everything seemed like it was like backwards, you know. They drove on the wrong side of the street and the food was a little different. You had to kind of get used to the food. We were excited about the fish and chips, so we would always get fish and chips because that was so new for us, you know. And then it was eaten out of a newspaper, you know, that was very exciting. But, you know, it wasn't that thrilled about the English food. It was that, that blood pie or, you know, we're like, oh, I don't know. Despite the strange food, cold weather and low attendance at their shows, the Motown artists always felt welcome in the UK. We were so happy to be here. We were thrilled to be seeing another part of the world that we'd never seen, never experienced, to meet people, to understand that people were basically just the way you are. This was like such a, a beautiful um, sort of awakening, especially for black people, to see that, wow, people really like us too. You know, we weren't put down. We were accepted on the merits of our talents. Their experiences in the UK were in distinct contrast to the very first Motown Review Tour, which traveled through the American Deep South in 1962. It was actually horrendous. I knew about uh, some of the segregation. However, even though there was segregation in Detroit, it was different than it was in the South. In 1965, as the Motown UK tour bus approached Gretna in Scotland, a naive practical joke brought the social and cultural differences between the British musicians and black Americans into sharp focus. We decided it would be a good idea if we held up the coach when it came along. I seem to have a memory of me putting this bullet thing on and perhaps having one of the guns. 
and we saw the coach coming in the distance and we stepped out into the road so this coach shuddered to a halt in front of us and there were some surprised looks from inside what colin green didn't realize was that the motown artists had been shot at during their tour through the american deep south three years earlier actually we were shot at several times i remember occasions going to a rural gas station and the proprietor coming out with a shotgun. I was uh, a little sleepy and a little slow getting off the bus. Three of the guys ran into the gas station asking to use the facilities with the proprietor saying, who are you? And uh, one of the guys said, oh, don't you know us? We're the Motown singers. We're famous. And the man said, I don't care who you are. Get out of my gas station. And he got his gun and proceeded to stop anyone else from getting off the bus. And I was the next one to get off. And I looked and saw this, this uh, double-barrel shotgun, and I definitely backed up. This man thought we had came to take over his gas station and rob him. And uh, that was a frightening experience. Civil rights hadn't really happened. You talked to the guys, you know, they were, they were having to, uh, you know, go check into other hotels. You know, there's a lot of that still going on, which we couldn't believe. We go, wait a minute. This is America. Isn't this like the land of the free? Yeah, well, we don't have that. Well, we've got black guys in Liverpool. They don't have to check into other hotels. We were quite shocked by this whole thing. In the earlier days, our pictures couldn't be on album covers for fear of, you know, people seeing it and not buying it. Uh, but the music spoke for itself. In the deep south, the power of Motown's music literally broke down racial barriers. Many times the audience was divided in half. You know, blacks were on one side, whites were on the other side, and they had a rope down the middle. Smokey was one of the first people who said that we were not going to perform unless they took that rope down and let everybody sit where they wanted to sit, and they actually did consent to that. He explained to them that our music was dance music and for fun and pleasure, and if they would just step back, they would see that the music is all about love and happiness. And once they stepped down, the audience got up out of those seats, separated seats, and they danced and sang. And when the music stopped, everyone hugged and embraced. We totally obliterated that thought and that idea of this being race music. It became music for everybody around the world. From Gretna, the tour bus made its way through Scotland to Glasgow for the Motown show on the 1st of April, 1965. Thank you I was living in Edinburgh at the time, where there was only one black family. So I saw very few black people at all. And really when I saw the the girls on the Motown Review I was just they were just stunning they had red tasseled dresses on and they really made the most of their body movements as they sung and they had a pizzazz that none of the other artists local artists seemed to have they danced well they dressed well they just looked incredible very polished I had been so impressed by the first show that I went straight back to the box office 
to see if there were any tickets left for the second show. Luckily for Michael, Glasgow was no different to the other venues. The crowds didn't come, and it was easy to buy front row tickets for the second performance that evening. I do know that both Mary and Flo of the Supremes noticed we were back in the front row for the second show, and so made continual eye contact, which for me was just, I was just, my knees were going, I was having my own supreme mania. After the show finished, we had no way of getting back to Edinburgh, so we just decided to hang around the stage door and at least see the artists leave. When Mary, Diana and Florence of the Supremes came out, we tried to get their attention unsuccessfully. They were shepherded straight into a Cadillac and it drove off. We decided that we would chase it down, which is exactly what we did. It was a rainy, horrible night. Although it was April, it was not a nice evening. We several times almost caught them up as the car would stop at traffic lights. And we could see Mary and Flo watching us out the back window. And eventually Flo asked the driver to pull over and they stopped the car and we talked to them. They invited us back to their hotel. And my life's never really been quite the same since. As the teenage Michael Critchley discovered, the Motown show was certainly sexy, but it was never allowed to dominate. Motown and Berry was very aware that white people wouldn't accept black men particularly if they were too overtly sexual. And I think that was the whole idea behind their look, that they wore beautifully tailored suits and the routines and the way they danced, it wasn't necessarily sexual, it was just stunning. Our thing was to just be clean cut and to appeal to everybody in the world and not to play down your sexuality, but just don't portray it, you know. Just portray a manly, sharp-looking man uh, doing his thing. <laughs> Maxine Powell set up Motown's unique artist development department to guide and shape the young Motown stars. You dance with your feet and not your buttocks. You see, those movements that they dance with their buttocks belongs in the bedroom and not on the dance floor. Miss Maxine Powell was phenomenal. It was almost like going through charm school and being able to show the world that you could be classy and you did have grace and charm. Class will help you cross over anywhere. It has nothing to do with black. That's what I like about class. Class doesn't care what your color is, or how many millions you have, or how many Mercedes you have, or where you live. Class will turn the heads of kings and queens. They heard that all while the five years they were with me. We couldn't even drink out of a water fountain in public unless it said for colored only. And that was pretty demeaning. So for her to say, here you are, three little black girls, one day you're going to be singing before kings and queens, we were like looking at her there, <laughs> what is she talking about? You know, it was like so silly. We, we didn't believe any of that stuff. And then she also said, you girls, and she's speaking to all the groups, are like diamonds in the rough, and we're just here to polish you up. 
Well, that was pretty uplifting for someone to say. And even for her to say he was singing before kings and queens, that was pretty uplifting. But we didn't believe it because it was so far-fetched. But it did happen. Is it true what they say about you? After the Glasgow show, the tour drove south into England towards County Durham. Here, the review was invited back to Wynyard Park, a stately home owned by the Lord and Lady Londonderry, who were intrigued by the passing Motown review. The lessons the Detroit stars had learned from Maxine Powell were about to be put to the test. Yes, with the Lord and Lady Londonderry. <laughs> we were invited to this wonderful home. We had a wonderful meal, a royalty. It was quite, quite an eye-opener to see how the other half lived. <laughs> there were rooms and rooms and rooms that they never even ventured into, you know. And Oh, it was really quite something. I loved the fresh air. I loved the, the company. And uh, feeling great in this palace. They had their chefs and all prepare the meals. And it was ooh, just very push, push, push. And it was one of those times you thought about what Mrs. Powell had said. You know, one day you'll be dining with kings and queens and this and that. We're like, whoa, we're doing it. <laughs> just learning to drink tea. Learning that that's the way you keep warm. And that's the way you keep cool. You keep calm with your tea. We started drinking sherry. Oh, we were also sheep. Have a little sherry, please. <laughs> that was so British. We were like, oh, yeah. I also started drinking champagne during that time, too. Good champagne. Mm-hmm. As the Motown Review traveled from the London Derry stately home across northern England to Liverpool, the Motown artists witnessed contrasting sides of British society. We noticed the class system here immediately. Being black, we would notice it. We would see it. You guys just did not acknowledge it the way it was. We were from Liverpool, they were from Detroit. Two very working class towns. So we were very similar in our upbringing, in our attitudes towards life. And we loved music. We respected their music so much. And lucky for us, they respected ours. In both Liverpool and Detroit, music was seen as a way of breaking out society's restrictions. Eddie Holland, Lamont Dozier and Brian Holland were the three songwriters whose compositions were helping many Motown acts to get out of the ghetto. They were the Lennon and McCartney of Detroit. I call them the greatest tailors of music there is. I mean, they would take you as an artist call you into their room talk about them say okay and they'll fit you with this wonderful song and you walk out the room they'll go ahead and they produce it and it comes out big hit next here comes the Vandellas totally different kind of outfit but they're still tailor making this particular song okay boom boom number one next one it's a thrill to work with them Brian would do the background vocals Eddie would do the lead vocals, and Lamont would play the keyboard. And all three of them had beautiful voices, so anything they taught you, you could emulate them and you could succeed. So a lot of my earlier recordings with them, I'm actually just mocking Eddie Holland. Uh, Lamont would come up with many of the ideas for the songs. Sometimes Brian would, sometimes I would. But my job was basically just to write the lyrics and teach the artist the songs. That was my, you know, and, you know, take them to the studio and make sure... They were delivering it in a way that um, 
Well, I wanted them to anyway. <laughs> Holland Dozier Holland wrote the first hit for the Four Tops. This group, led by Levi Stubbs, was a late signing to Motown and not part of the UK tour in 1965. It was often said that the late Levi Stubbs, who was just a tremendous singer, had to, you know, had to listen to Eddie, and Eddie told him how to sing. Well, it was like, you're going to tell, you know, Levi Stubbs how to sing. <laughs> Uh, and but he did, and and it was it was just like magic because he was a guy who already knew what he was doing. But Eddie would direct every lead singer how to sing every little portion of that song, and that's uh, again was what made the magic. In March 1965, while the Motown Review toured the UK, the latest Holland Dozier Holland song knocked the Beatles off the top of the American charts. The Beatles and Motown were now regularly fighting it out for the number one position in the States. We put a record out, uh, you know, very influenced by them. They put a record out, a bit influenced by us. And we were hoping that they'd come up with something strong. We were, and although we, we didn't say it, but we wanted the competition. You know, well, we welcomed the competition, matter of fact, because it kept us on our toes. That it was like that in those days. It was kind of nice, really. It was never, you know, a deadly rivalry at all. It was just a homage. We were kind of paying each other in public. We were stimulating each other to write and be the best that we could be. 1964 and 1965, the Supremes reached number one five times on the U.S. pop charts, all written by Holland Dozier Holland. But despite this American success, the Motown tour repeatedly failed to draw the crowds in the U.K. We just thought it was going to be a sellout, you know, and this and that. And each time we would go to a different town and a different theater, and it was the same. It, it, it really never got better. But night after night, looking out into the audience and seeing a half-empty house, England was a big disappointment. <laughs> the tour's failure was most disappointing to the ambitious Barry Gordy. But after the tour's final show in Portsmouth, he was given one last chance to crack the UK by another British friend. They say it themselves that if it hadn't been for Dusty, they probably wouldn't have gotten their foot in the door. Dusty Springfield, one of the most successful British singers at the time, was also a huge Motown fan. You have the greatest boy in the world. Without a doubt, you would have ever Before the review went back to the States, Dusty used her influence to get them on one of the few cool shows on British television. You are watching the sound of Motown. After the negative attitude of most of radio and all television, 
the advent of Ready Steady Go was a major, major plus for pop music in general, American black music in particular. If you were a kid who was interested in anything slightly alternative, edgy, then Ready Steady was the place where you, you did get mixture of music, you got American artists, you got American records, you got people who were mods, who looked wonderful with the hair, the clothes. We really did reflect swinging London. What made an hour-length Motown special all the more extraordinary was that black people rarely appeared on British television in the mid-60s. We didn't see black music and when Ready Steady had James Brown on and we, we did a whole show with him, a whole hour, I mean the amount of people that called up and complained about having him on television was absolutely horrifying. There weren't that many black people visible on television except for Cleo Lane who looked white. This was how she got on television because you didn't see black people on the television. To persuade the businessmen at Associated Rediffusion to broadcast an hour-length program full of Motown artists, unknown to most of the British public, was a challenge. Motown special wouldn't have been an easy thing to do because uh, although we loved the music, I get a feeling that uh, the, the, the bosses and the people didn't realize how good the music was. Vicky Wickham's suggestion that Dusty Springfield host the event made it far more palatable to her bosses. She said to them, I will do it, and they couldn't believe it. And Dusty at that time was like the biggest soulful singer in this country, and when she said, I'll do it, they, it was like, here we go. We weren't surprised that Ready, City Go would put on something like that, because there's what we thought was the best stuff around. So put it on telly. Introduced by Dusty Springfield. Dusty thought she'd died and gone to heaven. I mean, it was her idea of absolute bliss. Motown has stands for Motown, which is Detroit, and it's famous for its cars, and for a collection of buildings called Pittsburgh. And here were their newest one. Ooh, baby, baby, it is the miracle! I was on some goddamn school trip in the middle of Cornwall thinking, how on earth am I going to get to a television set? I'm going to die if I don't see this program. The hotel bar had a television set and a billiards table. I don't know what I would have done if that, if that TV set hadn't been in that hotel. Probably would have killed someone. Certainly for me, it was incredibly important because all these artists I liked and was telling everybody about suddenly had national exposure. The Ready Steady Go show hosted by Dusty Springfield was very important to the Motown sound because no one had heard of the Miracles or the Supremes. 
prior to that show. And after that, all of our music hit the charts. To me, it was a wonderful show, one of the best. The exciting part was, was the finale. Everybody was on stage together, and everybody sang, and everybody did Mickey's Monkey. Motown was what they call underground now. Underground, but it was coming up overground. And when it came on TV in the uh, Ready Steady Go special, that's when really everyone who had a TV could see this music for the first time as it was. And I think that's when the, the British love affair with Motown began. Motown artists flew back to Detroit before the Ready Steady Go special was broadcast across Britain. If the show had been televised during their UK trip, the tour may well have been the success they'd hoped for. One year later, in the autumn of 1966, England had just won the World Cup and the British capital was now officially swinging. The Four Tops were at number one in the UK pop charts and had just flown in to play their very first show in London. You could argue that November the 13th, 1966 was when it truly arrived. It was the collision of the popular and the cool. It was cool because the show was promoted by Brian Epstein. It had the imprimatur of the Beatles. Everyone in London wanted to be there. And we were allowed to go along and he had a little special box for himself and us. So we can all just sit there, you know, like kings of the universe, checking out the Motown show, you know. Well, we didn't need any more in life than that. We went out there, and it was, it was like the people were just hungry for us. It's like everything just opened up, and we just fell into their groove. And then we took them to ours, and it was probably the best show we ever did. I mean, we were really hyped. But something happened that night that was really magic. And they moved like a train. You just couldn't believe that such excitement and such dynamism was possible and they captured it and you know Levi with the commanding voice everything about them was was the quintessence of Motown they kept these grooves going uh, the rhythm section I can remember I stood there and got the audience to get to get up on their feet because and, and clap on the offbeat because the groove was so strong, and I think that was the first time that the generally staid English audiences actually got up and danced 
as they listen. We had about three or four encores, if I'm not mistaken, that night. I mean, we had to keep going back. What a night that was, and I'll never forget it. Suddenly it was everywhere. It ruled the world. So you could almost say that that was the peak, that was the moment, at least in Britain, where everyone was in love with Motown. That's what it meant. That was it. And in 1966, while we were on that tour, we could say that Motown had truly arrived. Everywhere you went, I mean, people was just all they talked about was the Motown sound. I mean, and we were basically like the Beatles. Sometimes we had we had to jump in ambulance. You know, we had to go out the back door of theaters, you know, to, 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 to get away from the crowd and things like that. And a lot of times we thought we thought about that and talked about it was in the dressing room. Said, man, you know, where where we just come from and look where we are now. Said, what a wonderful world this is, man. How great is this? The UK tour and Ready Steady Go special in 1965 were absolutely crucial to establishing Motown success in Britain. By 1966, with an increasing flow of musical masterpieces hitting the British charts, Motown had finally cracked the UK. Motown music had a magic about it, that there was just a continuity, there was a, a style, there was a feel-good factor. It was very uplifting in its way, very spiritual and I wouldn't have missed it for the world. What are you gonna do when I'm gone? Whose shoulder are you gonna play on? What are you gonna do on the day when I turn my head and just walk away? No! What are you gonna say to your friends? There was nothing else like it, nothing else whatsoever. Motown, it will definitely go down in history as being whew, like Obama, <laughs> the first, you know. There's no week that goes by when I haven't played a Motown record on a radio station somewhere. And it doesn't sound dated, it sounds as fresh as the day they made it. It's just a label that is just so special. The artists are just so wonderful. It's something that no other label has captured. Stay with us tonight here on BBC4. There's plenty more funk to come as we're standing in the shadows of Motown. Next. Welcome back. And uh, that was a review of uh, the Motown uh, sound in the UK, um, reviewing uh, the chart breakthroughs in late 1964 and the Motown review tour of uh, the spring of, winter and spring of uh, 1965. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, June 25th, uh, 2023. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal special uh, worldwide radio broadcast. We'll take a break and uh, come back uh, with our concluding segment. 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast on this Sunday, June 25th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and that was uh, more uh, Detroit-originated uh, music uh, from 1968 
uh, from the group uh, Black Murder uh, from Detroit uh, with uh, Fuji Ellington on vocals. Uh, the track entitled Mary, Don't Take Me on No Bad Trip. Music uh, from Black Murder, uh, which was heavily influenced uh, by the Jimi Hendrix experience, which was all the rage in 1968 uh, when this track was released here in the city of Detroit. And uh, we're going to move into the African National Congress Western Cape Provincial Conference that was held over the weekend. And uh, ANC President Thabo Mbeki, ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, it, what delivered the concluding address uh, of uh, the African National Congress Western Cape Provincial Conference. And uh, what you'll hear is uh, Liberation Struggle Music. Then, of course, report uh, from the ANC Western Cape Provincial Leadership, and then uh, remarks from President Ramaphosa of the Republic of South Africa. This is um, uh, recorded um, earlier today, and we'll hear excerpts uh, from uh, this important occasion.
year retreat to China. Thank you for your attendance. Veterans of our movement, alliance partners and MDM formations, regional leaders and branch delegates. We have come to an end of the ninth provincial conference, a journey that began with our internal democratic processes in branch general meetings. The ninth provincial conference, a parliament of branch delegates throughout the province, has concluded successfully. We want to thank the IPC for delivering on its mandate. Though it was not easy, they have done wonders. Must further thank delegates for their discipline they displayed throughout this conference. <laughs> Our conference was not characterized by controversy. Yeah. We have outdone ourselves. All engagements in conference were dignified and matured, including on sensitive matters of credentials. We were able to pull through as a matured collective of the province. Comrade, as the new leadership, we are humbled by the confidence you have shown in us. We are further humbled by the responsibility bestowed on our shoulders by the membership of the ANC. We want to assure you, this, this confidence you shown to us, we don't take it for granted. We don't take your support for granted. We commit to be servants of our branches and communities. In this regard, we commit to relate all our PEC meetings in all six regions of our <laughs> This will be done for the purposes of connecting with our branches and broader communities. The PEC will be required to do political work in regions and fellow travelers will not be tolerated in this PEC. Comrades, the era of trustees in the province must come to an end. With this conference concluded successfully, we must now speed and with urgency convene the regional conferences of Dara Omar and Vintamulos. These two conferences must take place on or before the end of July this year. Comrades, yes. at the same time, we must assist all our leagues in their political work 
including convening of their conferences. No structure of the ANC and its lead must be led by a tasking, tasking, especially as we enter the election campaign. Delegates, there are many pressing issues confronting us as we close this conference. We need to agree about what is required to deal with these pressing issues. We need to go back to basics, but not as a slogan. First things first, when we leave this world through that door, we must all leave behind our lobby groups here. Leaders of various caucuses and perspectives are instructed to disband them now for their purpose is over. We must remove from our vocabulary terms like Rural for Change, RRU, 406, KK for PS, and all other unorganizational terms. We must be ANC members, all of us, the divide on preferences of leadership is over. Our preferences one is the African National Congress. From here, comrades, we must go back to our structures and report about the outcomes of this conference. Engage our alliance partners on the outcome of this conference at all levels. Prepare our structures for the election work. We will have to convene a provincial election strategy workshop and get ready our election machinery. This conference has re-energized us after a four years of love. Its resolutions must serve as a guide to action. Comrade, this elected leadership has a responsibility to unite the province beyond factional divide, and we are ready for that task. Please, comrades, keep us accountable. A healthy ANC in the province depend on our unity and our, common, our common commitment to its program. Lastly, Honourable President, on behalf of the entire membership of the ANC in the province, we want to thank you, President, and the collective of the ANC for being patient with the Western Cape. Since you install, install the IPC, Four years ago, you were never irritated with us. You hold our hand, yourself president, together with your collective until that far. Please convey our best thanks to the National Executive Committee. You have acted as a parent to us, president in the NPC. Here we are today, we are no longer called conveners and coordinators, 
we are an elected leadership. Hence, thanks to your leadership, President, and the collective of the NEC, we will always be indebted to the work we have done for our province. Moreover, we want to assure you, President, that this elected leadership will deliver, after four years, a healthy ANC to a provincial program. <laughs> we will refuse any temptation to be disbanded for not performing our work. <laughs> we will act in unity and as one body as this PEC. And we wish all delegates who will be traveling safe journey. The task ahead is huge. As I said earlier on, the Chatisama Popa is pretty demand. Let us all rise and sing a revolutionary song and welcome the President of the ANC to close our conference. Thanks
Provincial Executive Committee, whose members we don't know yet, <laughs> but who we will know soon, I hope. Leaders and representatives of our leagues, Veterans League, the Youth League and the Women's League, Alliance Formations, <laughs> Delegates and all of you comrades, and of course members of the media who are also here. Indeed, comrades, it's a, it's a really great pleasure to be in the conference of the ANC in the Western Cape. I hear that the conference has gone well from beginning to end without any hassle. And congratulations to you all that much as there were some expectations in some places that uh, that not chairs would be flying, but maybe bottles would be flying, <laughs> and uh, people would be arguing, and there was nothing, nothing, nothing like that. To a point where they are disappointed. And some were even had to be saying, oh, this conference is boring, there's no action here. So I wish to commend you all and congratulate you for holding a most successful conference and also to setting up a really good example and the whole organization that you've been able to hold a conference with no controversy, no tension, Comrade Supramauma Pelu was saying it was impossible to find any tension in this conference including when you were electing your top five leaders. People were looking for tension, there was no tension. Congratulations from you. After a long period of instability, as well as uncertainty within the structures of our movement, you've been successful at having this conference and we now look forward to how you are going to advance the process of unity, of renewal and the revitalization of the ANC here in the Western Cape. I want to especially endorse what the provincial chairperson has just said that all those groups, whatever they were called, JJ, whatever, 406, R46C, I don't know what R4C stands for. It can be Ramaphosa for several. <laughs> and CD23, TM23, that all those end here and today. When you go back home, they no longer exist. All that exists is the African National Congress United, here in the Western Cape. And Congress, we are also holding your conference on the eve 
of the anniversary of the Congress of the People, which was held in Cape Town 68 years ago, on the 26th of June, 1955, when our forebears met in Cape Town to adopt the Freedom Charter, which has been the foundation document which has shaped the future of our country and also has been the cornerstone of our constitution. It is therefore appropriate that the resolutions which you are going to have to deal with at a later stage when you finalize your conference process, that we should continue to advance the vision of the Freedom Charter to build a South Africa that belongs to all who live in it, black and white, as the Freedom Charter said. We expect the outcomes of this conference to give further meaning to the call that all national groups as set out in our base documents shall have equal rights, that the people shall share in the wealth of our country and that there shall be peace and friendship. This conference, comrades, has had to confront many challenges. It has had to reflect very critically on the state of organization in the province. And I'm glad that you ran and concluded your branch AGMs, which shows that, yes, the organization is alive, the organization is breathing, and we have a foundation upon which we can build a very strong ANC here in the Western Cape. And it is a foundation on which we can build a cohesive ANC, much as we have had to address our own internal organizational challenges over the period of the ITC. And I want to also reiterate our congratulations to the ITC as led by Comrade Lerumo. Congratulations for the work that you have done up till now. Yes, you are right, Comrade JJ, we were patient. We knew that you would reach this moment. And we are very proud as the NEC that you indeed have reached this moment. We also congratulate the NEC deployees who have helped to guide your process of preparing for this conference and the political issues that we had to deal with. Comrade Barbara Creasy, thank you very much, together with all the other deployees who have worked with you to get us to this point. So, comrades, in approaching these various tasks, this conference has been guided and has had to be guided by the January 8th statement, which was released by the NEC earlier this year. In explaining the roadmap 2032, we adopted at the 55th conference, we said, Central to the ANC roadmap is the understanding that the ANC will only succeed in realizing 
its strategic objectives when it confronts its subjective weaknesses and successfully transforms itself into a renewed, responsive, modernized, well-governed, well-resourced, ethical, caring, and effective political formation. We don't have the time now to unpack all those key elements and it's continued to say as we build an outward-looking ANC with a clear program that is responsive to meet the needs of our people, all ANC structures must focus on putting our people and the solutions to their daily struggles first. The journey is continued of renewal has to begin in earnest and become unstoppable and also become irreversible so that we pay attention to and direct all our energies to the resolution of the pressing challenges and problems facing the people of South Africa. That's what we said when we ended our 55th conference. In other words, we need to fix the problems inside the ANC so that we can more effectively work to address the challenges facing our people. The ANC itself, having fixed its own problems, can then be the trusted leader of our people, the leader of society. It is primarily through working together to meet the needs of the people of South Africa that we will be able to build a stronger and more united organization. Now, at the center of the renewal of our movement is the task of building branches as centers of strength, centers of cohesion, and centers of an ANC that is prepared, willing to work for the development of our community. Now, the fact that you succeeded, comrades, in getting to this point, holding your branch meetings and preparing for this conference, to me it basically means that the renewal process is firmly underway. It means that we have embraced renewal and the fact that you've also been able to hold a conference without all the various tensions, confusion, upheavals that sometimes happen in some of our conferences means that indeed you have taken the task of building the ANC. And as I was saying, comrades, you are setting a very good example. You are among the last provinces to hold your conference, but you've also shown that being last also means that you can do things best and much better than we have seen around the country. So I was saying to Comrade JJ and the others, I was saying the Western case can therefore teach our other provinces an important lesson. And today, 
the various provinces that will be looking at you in the way that you have this conference have a lot to learn from you and I will be the first to tell them what they should be learning from you. So that is very good. Now the 56th National Conference also recognized that the restoration of the vibrant organizational life of our branches is an urgent and vitally important task of the moment. So this provincial conference... Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, South African and African National Congress President Cyril Ramaphosa speaking earlier today at the African National Congress Western Cape Provincial Conference, uh, given the concluding remarks uh, of uh, that event. And that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast, and uh, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit on this Sunday, uh, June 25th, uh, 2023. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. Dot com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to conclude uh, with the music of uh, John Coltrane and, of course, uh, the legendary uh, John Coltrane. Uh, this is taken from the album entitled Dial Africa. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.